Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, for the first time ever, an MPP has been ejected from the legislature because she was not vaccinated. Families of politicians are supposed to be off limits, but one of Premier Doug Ford's daughters is becoming increasingly difficult to ignore. We'll have a feature interview with Finance Minister Peter Bethlen-Falvey about the state of the province's books and putting together his pre-election budget, plus a whole lot more. It's Tuesday, December 14th, 2021, so let's get to it. John Michael, I think we suspected this moment would likely happen, but we didn't know who it would happen to or when. Well, now we know. For the first time ever, an elected member of the Ontario legislature was ejected from the chamber because of COVID-19. Now, before you tell us why independent Cambridge MPP Belinda Carajolios was turfed last week, let's hear how it happened. Here is the Speaker of the Legislature, Ted Arnott. As the member knows full well, having um, being, being unvaccinated and having tested positive for COVID-19. The current advice from the public officer of health is that she must be out of the chamber for the next 90 days, starting from the date upon which she tested positive. I'll ask the member once again to leave the chamber. Okay, JMM, why did that happen? Belinda Carajalios is unvaccinated for COVID-19, and that on its own is not enough for her to be ejected from the chamber. Uh, There are other (laughs) unvaccinated MPPs, uh, Rick Nichols notably. Uh, She is allowed to be in the chamber if she is regularly tested. The catch is that she also tested positive for COVID in late November, uh, I believe on the 19th, if I've got my dates right. Speaker Arnott said in the House that the public health rules require her to stay away from the chamber for 90 days after a positive test. Uh, That would mean Carajalios isn't allowed back in the legislature until February, uh, conveniently, uh, around the time the legislature is due to return from the winter break anyway. Well, you and I have both seen lots of MPPs ejected over the years, but it's almost always for things like popping off during question period or calling somebody a liar or you know, that kind of thing. Never for anything like this. Do you ever recall an ejection over something unrelated to unparliamentary speech? No. And, you know, we've discussed this before. The The COVID rules at Queen's Park right now really are um, novel in terms of constraining the rights and privileges of members. You know, remember, MPPs are supposed to be allowed to access uh, the legislature to do their jobs. And it's that's like a constitutional imperative, not just the law. I've seen MPPs ejected for, uh, as you mentioned, refusing to apologize or withdraw unparliamentary language, uh, or for just generally being disruptive. Uh, but never this. Uh, it is worth noting here that the 90-day rule are not asserted. Uh, that's, that's new to me. I don't know where that comes from. And if this rule was being enforced against one of the major parties and not uh, an independent MPP, with precious few allies in the House, we might see it challenged. Uh, As it is, at the moment, it looks like we will next see the MPP for Cambridge at the legislature uh, no earlier than February. Yeah, I have to confess that was new to me as well, this whole 90-day business of staying away. And I don't know what the status of Belinda Carajalios' upset over being ejected is right now, but it would not shock me to hear 
uh, that she might be pursuing a legal avenue against the speaker or against the government, against somebody, uh, for kicking her out. You know, you've pointed out she has constitutionally protected duties to be in that chamber doing her work. Now, that's not to say that she's allowed to disobey the, the you know, the, the agreed upon rules of the legislature, uh, but it does make for um, it does make for an intriguing court case as to um, whether they're allowed to kick her out under these conditions. Yeah, I think what you might see is a motion from MPPs clarifying how long uh, an MPP could be ejected uh, in these circumstances, uh, you know, maybe formalizing, you know, if it's not a 90-day rule, what is the rule? Um, but, uh, you know, this is also a, an area that courts have been very reluctant to get involved with. It's just, it's so inherently political, right? Now, this may further widen the gap between the 90% of Ontarians who have been vaccinated and those who are either anti-vaxxers or are vaccine hesitant or are just delaying for whatever reason still. I know people who live in very remote parts of this province who haven't been vaccinated because they say there's no COVID around here and we don't need it. Okay, whatever. To that end, another former Tory MPP, Roman Babber, who's now an independent, held a news conference last week to reiterate his opposition to the government's approach to dealing with COVID-19. Let's go through his program. What did he have to say? First of all, Babber emphasized that he has been vaccinated, so he he is not uh, opposing vaccinations. He's not an anti-vaxxer. Uh, he, I guess, doesn't want to appear to be uh, one of the, the knuckleheads. <laughs> uh, but he is making the case that the government has been uh, far too intrusive in the way it is now handling this crisis. Uh, Babber wants to uh, really emphasize protections for long-term care. Uh, that is, of course, as we all know, where more than half of the uh, COVID-19 deaths in Ontario have taken place. Uh, he wants hospital capacity and staffing increased. Uh, you know, as, as Babber says, 400 patients in ICU should not shut down the healthcare system. Uh, he wants there to be no vaccine mandates uh, and basically, you know, wants things to go back to normal. <laughs> Well, Babber has said some fairly controversial things in the past, but uh, I mean, let's put this on the record here. Some of those items don't seem all that controversial. Of course, long-term care needs to be the priority, given how fatal COVID-19 has been in long-term care homes. And yes, if it's doable, increasing hospital capacity seems to make sense as well, since it would be pretty undesirable to shut down all of society in order to ensure that we don't overstress our hospital ICUs. However, beyond that, that's where things get a bit controversial, I guess, eh? Right. Well, you know, the, the if we can do it of increasing hospital capacity is the big question. Uh, even before COVID, before the pandemic, Ontario had uh, generally fewer ICU beds than lots of other jurisdictions around the world, including most U.S. states. Um, you know, the government is not imposing um, a, a, you know, a true vaccine mandate for the general public. Obviously, we have the vaccine passport system, but that's different. Um, but they have said that vaccines should be mandatory for long-term care home workers. And you know, I think this is one of the contradictions in, in Babber's positions where, you know, he wants no vaccine mandates, but vaccine mandates are how we protect long-term care residents and how we minimize sickness and death in long-term care homes. Uh, some hospitals have also determined that their healthcare workers must be vaccinated. For the vast majority of Ontarians, these measures uh, make sense. Uh, but uh, 
clearly not for MPP Babber. Let's uh, stay with this COVID news for a bit more here. Last Friday, the government announced that it's toughening up the rules around vaccine passports. Those uh, so-called medical exemptions that some people have been getting to enjoy things like bars and restaurants without getting vaccinated, well, that's about to get a whole lot tougher to do. Uh, Maybe impossible, actually. Tell us about that. This is part of a suite of measures the government announced Friday afternoon, and they're all largely a response to uh, the threat posed by the Omicron variant. We already knew that the government was looking for a way to incorporate medical exemptions into the existing QR code vaccine passport system. Uh, It looks like that is going to start in January. Uh, Currently, people are allowed to just present a doctor's note saying that they are exempt uh, as of January 10th, 2022. That New Year's coming up real soon. (laughs) Uh, That will no longer be allowed. And anyone who's claiming a vaccine exemption will need to They'll have to go to their healthcare provider and get an actual, you know, some paperwork to, that they can then bring to the local public health unit. If the local public health uh, uh, body confirms that the exemption is legitimate, uh, that exemption is now going to be baked into that person's QR code. They will have to show a QR code to be scanned like everyone else in Ontario. And when you say everyone else, you mean everyone else? That's right. Until now, uh, people have been able to use the old uh, vaccine certificates we had before the QR codes were issued. As of January 4th, uh, everyone in the province is going to have to start using the QR code based vaccine passports. If you don't have one already, uh, you can download it from the province's website at covid19.ontariohealth.ca. You will need your health card uh, and you'll need to know your birthday. The province is also making a bunch of alternative ways to get the QR code for people who might not be, you know, web savvy enough, uh, including you can just go to a Service Ontario location if you need to. Uh, And remember that you don't need to have a smartphone. Uh, You can print out the QR code and just keep a copy in your wallet or purse. Uh, I got mine laminated. (laughs) <laughs> uh, which is a good idea. And of course, uh, you know, people don't have printers at their homes. They can go to the local public library and get that done there. Let us just let's go up to 35,000 feet now, as they say, and just take a really broad uh, scan of what's going on, because it's really worth reminding everybody in case they need reminding. We're not out of this yet. And as Kieran Moore, the medical officer of health for the province of Ontario, reminded us all last week, Remember all that stuff we talked about when COVID first hit? You know, wash your hands, make sure you wear your mask on properly indoors, particularly in crowded settings. Try to practice physical distancing. Like all that stuff is still necessary to do. Several weeks ago, JMM, I know you'll remember this. We were down to a few hundred cases a day and we were looking pretty good. Well, we're now back over a thousand positive test cases a day because of both Delta and Omicron. And I always like to compare. I mean, of course, we've got to stay vigilant. Um, But the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which is two thirds the size of Ontario, um, well, they're they're up at five and six thousand cases a day. So this thing can get out of hand pretty quickly. So, yes, we do have to stay vigilant still. Uh, That is particularly timely advice, given that uh, we are about to head into the holiday season. Uh, Lots of people uh, traveling for vacations, gathering with friends and family. And, you know, as you say, we still have to exercise caution. Uh, Dr. Moore said uh, we should still be uh, masked indoors when getting together with family, especially uh, when we don't know the vaccination status of of everybody in the party. Uh, Another reminder that uh, as of yesterday, uh, on, on Monday, December 3rd, 
13th, Ontarians uh, age 50 and up are now eligible to get their booster shots. Uh, the science has really become quite clear on this, especially in the last few weeks. You know, uh, if you are not vaccinated, you are 23 times more likely to end up in an ICU if you get COVID. If you're not vaccinated, you are 13 times more likely to end up in a hospital. And we are going to talk a lot about third doses in the coming uh, weeks and uh, probably months. Uh, there are still a huge number of people in Ontario who have not had their first dose and uh <laughs> really, if you're within the sound of my voice and you haven't had a first dose of a vaccine yet, please, please, please uh, consider getting vaccinated. Okay, let's move on. And let's also acknowledge off the top that this next item is, well, this is a tricky one to talk about because there are really two competing principles here. Uh, on the one hand, generally speaking, there is a principle that the family of politicians are considered off limits. Media don't cover them unless they have a direct role in the public life of the politician. For example, you know, Ivanka Trump had a significant role in President Donald Trump's administration, so she got covered by media and that was considered fair. But so far, if I can bring this home to Ontario, media have generally not covered the goings-on of Premier Doug Ford's four children because their lives have been separate to his political life until now. JMM, bring us the 411. One of Doug Ford's daughters, uh, Krista, has been uh, increasingly all over uh, social media opposing her father's COVID-19 strategy and policies. Uh, she has even gone so far as to say those responsible will be held accountable because at the end of the day, quote, evil does not win. Uh, Krista went uh, even further by allowing herself to be the headliner at a fundraiser for Charles McVetty's uh, so-called Christian Fight for Freedom, uh, and her presence was advertised as uh, Krista Haynes, that's her married name, uh, the family of Premier Doug Ford. So this is increasingly uh, a problem for media to ignore because uh, Krista Haynes is uh, being taking an increasingly public role uh, in uh, opposition to her father's policies in very public ways. I suspect many of us can empathize with the premier's position on this. Um, you know, this is not a new phenomenon, actually. President Jimmy Carter, uh, those of us who are old enough to remember, had a brother, Billy, who was a frequent embarrassment to him. And President Bill Clinton had a half-brother named Roger, who was frequently in trouble with drugs and the law and so on. Anyway, the list goes on. We can list many. To the best of my knowledge, as we sit here taping this, I don't believe Ontario media have asked any questions to the premier about his daughter at a publicly held news conference. But I do wonder now how much longer that will last, given her increasingly public profile about her father's public health positions. You know, it, it's definitely being discussed all over uh, social media. Uh, you know, people could say, you know, if he can't convince his own daughter of his policies, how good of a politician is he? Uh, you know, that doesn't obviously take into account that, uh, well, first of all, kids disagree with their parents on politics. <laughs> like, you just wait, McGrath, it's coming for you. Your kid isn't old <laughs> enough to disagree with you on politics now, but it's coming. <laughs> um, you know, the other uh, dig that people make in all this is, is that, or at least the one I've heard more commonly, is that, you know, the, perhaps the premier has soft-pedaled his approach to vaccinations because he's trying not to upset his family. And, you know, I think that's kind of silly. Uh, Doug Ford is a small government conservative. He resisted things like vaccine passports uh, for months. And frankly, even the stuff we've talked about today, you know, I think a lot of his critics would say, you know, it is coming uh, at least weeks, if not months too late. Uh, but, you know, Doug Ford just 
doesn't like the expanding the power of the state uh, any more than he's already had to in the pandemic. And I don't think his family has much to do with that consideration, except for the fact that he, you know, really obviously and publicly comes from a family whose politics are just broadly conservative like his. Right. We'll have to keep an eye on this going forward. It, it does get very, very tricky because on the one hand, you do want to respect his family's privacy. But on the other hand, his daughter is making that increasingly difficult to do. Um, let's start off this next item by uh, my doing the full disclosure thing. Uh, I used to be uh, what's called the chancellor at Laurentian University in Sudbury. It's a ceremonial position. It has no decision-making authority. We preside over convocations and that kind of thing. That's what chancellors do. And we put all that on the record, as I asked Mr. McGrath here, about the Auditor General's attempt to get information out of Laurentian University for her annual report. Initially, Laurentian refused to cooperate with her attempts What's the latest chapter in this saga? You know, Laurentian is an important institution, both uh, in Sudbury and provincially. Uh, and and the, the financial crisis it faced uh, earlier this year uh, really you know, raised a lot of uh, alarm at Queen's Park. They, you know, MPPs from all parties want to know how this happened. Uh, so the Standing Committee on Public Accounts directed uh, Auditor General Bonnie Lissick to conduct an audit and figure out how things went so wrong there. Here's where things get muddy. The Auditor General has broad powers to investigate the public sector in Ontario, and provincial law gives her the authority to demand more or less any papers she wants from, say, a ministry. Laurentian's lawyers argued in court that the documents she is demanding are protected by solicitor-client privilege and that the law that gives her office its powers doesn't trump that privilege. Obviously, courts take solicitor-client privilege very, very seriously. Up until last week, this was all still in court waiting for a judge's decision. And what happened last week? What happened last week was the Standing Committee on Public Accounts uh, had also requested that some of Laurentian's leadership appear before the committee and also produce documents. Uh, Laurentian's leadership has not been forthcoming with either personal appearances or documents, and the Public Accounts Committee got fed up. They reported back to the legislature and asked MPPs to endorse what's called a speaker's warrant for documents from Laurentian. Uh, this is a rarely used power, uh, but it is a, it's a constitutional power that is inherent to all parliaments in Canada, both federally and provincially. Uh, but this is the first time since I've been covering Queen's Park that MPPs have used it. Well, we're really going to get into the weeds here, which you and I enjoy doing from time to time, because uh, I well remember the last time a speaker's warrant was issued. Uh, it was for the former CEO of a public agency called Orange. Um, it's the province's air ambulance service. They've got those famous orange looking helicopters. This is back when the agency was mired in a scandal. Um, oh, I don't know how this is a decade ago or so. Before that, you've got to go all the way back to 1991. So 30 years ago, when NDP MPP Shelley Martel was at the center of a scandal about whether she had improperly accessed confidential OHIP information. So this doesn't happen often. No, it's it's a power that the legislature uh, has, and, and they, they do use it on occasion, but it, it's sort of like, you know, pushing the big red nuclear button. <laughs> um, I'm going to before I go any further, I'm going to remind our listeners that I am not a lawyer, <laughs> but... He just uh, plays one on a podcast. Uh, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> nobody can see me, but I've got my judge's gown on and everything. <laughs> uh, you know, I think one way to understand what happened last week is that 
while Laurentian's lawyers may or may not have been right about the limits to the Auditor General's powers to get the documents she wanted, the power of the legislature to get the documents it wants and to get the, the public appearances uh, from Laurentian's leadership that it wants is, is really crystal clear. Uh, in theory, I guess Laurentian's lawyers could still challenge this in court, but I wouldn't want to bet a lot of money on their chances of successfully fighting an order of the legislature itself to compel documents or testimony. Well, this is one of these great fights that's going to be tested. Universities see themselves as being self-governing institutions. Uh, provincial governments see themselves as the ones uh, who give them the money uh, to be self-governing governing institutions. So, um, you know, they'll have a fight over which principle is more significant in this case. Now, from the People Come and People Go Department of Politics, there are two notables who announced that they are not going to be seeking re-election next year. Let's start municipally. We're going to start with Jim Watson, the mayor of Ottawa, who I think JMM kind of surprised everybody with this decision. Uh, that's right. Uh, announced it on uh, Friday morning last. Uh, he is... Uh going into his, his last year of a third term as mayor of Ottawa. Uh, you know, former Liberal MPP uh, won his uh, election in 2010. Um, in some ways, uh, Ottawa presaged uh, a lot of what happened in Toronto with the mayoralty of Rob Ford. Uh, Ottawa had a, a very controversial mayor, a uh, very, um, let's say, disruptive mayor, I think you could fairly say. Uh, and then Jim Watson won in 2010 as a maybe a bit more of a, a voice of reason. Um, in any case, Watson uh, fought really hard to build the national capital's light rail transit system. But as we have mentioned before on the podcast, uh, Ottawa's LRT has had some hard times in the last year. And I think above and beyond the fact that he was already the longest-serving mayor in Ottawa's history, uh, you can imagine Watson seeing a re-election campaign being more difficult with the um, <laughs> albatross of the LRT around him. It was going to be a, a, a tough and nasty campaign, no doubt. I suspect he probably could have won it anyway, but it probably would have been um, a lot less fun. And <laughs> yeah. if there's one thing we know, Jim Watson really loves politics. I, I've seen him on the hustings. I've seen him on the stump. This is a guy for whom politics really is. He's a, you know, he's a single man, um, no kids. Uh, politics is his life. And he loves, he just loves going to community events. He likes being out there. And um, who knows how much, uh, how many protests, how much hounding he would have had to take uh, had he run for re-election. So my hunch is that's why he's thought better of it. Uh, have we mentioned former Premier Bill Davis yet during this podcast? You know that's obligatory that we do that at least once. I mean, we're like 20 minutes into the tape, and I don't believe you've done it yet. So, oh, Well, then here's the I moment to do restraint. it. <laughs> here's the moment to do it then, JMM. Guess who has the same birthday as Jim Watson? Uh, the former Premier Bill Davis. There you go. They're both July 30th. <laughs> I just thought you'd, of course, need to know that. Uh, let's move to the other politician who has also uh, decided to hang him up, and that's Terrace Natashak, the NDP member for Essex in southwestern Ontario. He's decided that he's not going to run again. Do we know the reasons why? Uh, in his press release, uh, MPP Natashek says, and I quote, after a decade of splitting time between Essex and Queen's Park in Toronto, what's right for my family now is for me to be with them full time. And I know it is practically a punchline in politics to say that you're retiring to spend more time with your family, but I lean towards taking Natashek at his word here. Uh, it is hard work being an MPP, uh, and sometimes reporters make it harder. <laughs> and, and it gets a lot harder uh, the further you live from Toronto, because the job means 
lots of long drives uh, from the provincial capital back home. Uh, An additional wrinkle that we have talked about on the podcast before is that MPPs do not have pensions, uh, no matter how long they serve. I want to be clear that I'm being totally speculative here uh, as far as it concerns Taras Natashak himself. Uh, I have no idea what his motives are beyond what he's put in his news release, but If you told me that a guy in his mid-40s with a wife and two kids was starting to think about finding a job with a bit more professional and financial security than being an Ontario MPP, I'd say, well, no kidding. Uh, I know it is not a very popular position, but I I really do believe that the lack of pensions at Queen's Park does cost us in ways that we are not very good at measuring. Well, in fact, uh, MPPs used to have pensions, but it was the government of Mike Harris that decided to get rid of them in a a spasm of populism, which uh, he thought would uh, work well with the electorate. And you know what? It did. It was one of those things that people, some people remembered. Although it's funny, you know, JMM, when I want to find out what normal people think, not people like you and me, but normal people. Not weirdo obsessives like us. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I talked to my hockey buddies and you would not believe, I mean, the MPP's pension's been gone for 25 years and you would not believe how many, you know, Everyday Ontarians are out there who still come up to me and say, well, you know, of course, these guys have got their fat pensions and that's why they never, you know, they, they do this, that or the other thing. And I have to remind them, guys, the pension has been gone for 25 years. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so Harris got a good bump out of it in that 1995 and then subsequent 1999 election. Uh, but the fact is, uh, most people today completely forgot that he did it and politicians still take it on the chin for it. But there you go. Well, someone definitely thinking about next year's election is Ontario Finance Minister Peter Bethlen Falvey. Just under a year ago, he took the reins of the province's books after the previous minister, Rod Phillips, resigned because of an ill-advised trip down south when the premier was telling everyone, stay home. Anyway, Peter Bethlen Falvey is definitely in the throes of putting together next spring's budget, which may be quite influential in determining whether the current government is re-elected. Let's talk to him. Matthew, let's roll that interview, please. Minister Bethlen Falvey, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. So you had to take over the finance portfolio uh, during the the second wave of COVID uh, before presenting a budget in the midst of a global health and economic crisis. Uh, You really got thrown into the deep end of the pool. Uh, What were those first months like uh, earlier this year uh, leading up to your budget speech? Well, it was a remarkable time uh, on many levels. Uh, one of the first things I did was uh, call some of my predecessors like uh, Janet Ecker and Darcy McHugh and Rob Nixon and said, uh, do you have any advice? Uh, and uh, that was very helpful. Uh, I, I did talk to some former prime ministers and premiers and, you know, getting uh, this is the great thing about Canada. You know, everyone uh, took my call and gave me great advice. And I had people from different stripes give me the same advice. And that was uh that put a lot of uh, gave me a lot of confidence that uh, I, you know I and others were not alone that that everyone was working together to to come up with a fiscal plan and as you say in a very difficult and challenging time, uh, Janet Ecker did point out that uh, the, she had about ninety days to put her first budget together. I I had eighty five days I believe from appointment to tabling, but uh, we got the job done. But who's counting, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, give us a sense right now. You're in the lead up, obviously, to presenting the spring budget in whatever it is, three, four months or something like that. Give our listeners a sense of where things are at right now. What are you actually doing in the budget process as we speak right now to be ready for that date? 
That's a great question. And really going inside the inner workings of government, Treasury Board is meeting through what we call the multi-year planning process. Uh, we've already started our meetings and that's where all ministers come forward with their uh, plans for, for spending and for the future. And uh, so all that is being litigated at Treasury Board, which I'm uh, formerly ran and I'm now the vice chair. Um, and that all comes then uh, together in, in uh, January, roughly February, and then the finance minister has to take all that, make tough decisions and put the priorities of, of the day in front of uh, my, my caucus colleagues. Um, of course, this is an unprecedented time because we're still got a very, our number one priority uh, at very top focus is on the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic's not defeated. So the challenge for, for us is to make sure we continue to have our focus on the pandemic. But secondly, uh, think down the road a little bit and have the political will to, to think long term, to get shovels in the ground, to do other things that you know are necessary for the long term. You mentioned long-term thinking. Uh, Pre-COVID, there was uh, a debate, certainly at the federal level, about uh, whether government needed a, a fiscal anchor, uh, like a policy target that governments would commit to to balance the budget. Um, does Ontario need a fiscal anchor in the future? Yeah, I think I think uh, all governments of all levels need to have fiscal anchors. You, you have to have a compass, a, a North Star. And so that's why, John Michael, in the March budget, uh, we put a number of fiscal anchors in place, uh, you know, like the debt to GDP uh, at uh, a little over 50 percent. We're now at 43.9, I believe. Um, we were much closer and we thought we'd be much closer to that back in March with the third wave. But you don't know what's around the corner. Um, so that's one particular uh, metric that we look at. Debt to revenue is another. Uh, interest expense, all these things go in. But again, they're 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 to give you a compass for the long term. There, uh, in the near term, we will and I will continue to do everything it takes to support uh, all our ministers fighting uh, this pandemic because we're the job's not done yet. Treasurer, let's talk uh, childcare. Uh, Ontario is one of the last jurisdictions in the country. Uh, not to have a childcare agreement with the federal government. They're dying to give you billions of dollars and you're not taking it yet. How come? Well, I, I, I listen to a lot of people and, and and you asked earlier about the budget and a big part of that is the consultations, which also inform uh, the finance minister's ultimate decision-making and that'll start in early January. Um, listening to a lot of people, and I know someone referenced Prime Minister Robarts uh, uh, numerous times about when the uh, health uh, Canada health transfer uh, Medicare was put forward and he called it a Machiavellian scheme. <laughs> and it was pointed out to me that it was 50-50. And the reason he called it a Machiavellian scheme was that uh, it was not sustainable. And just you watch, the provinces will end up uh, carrying the weight. And sure enough, today, uh, we we spend uh, almost 80 cents on the dollar on the Canada on the health and Canada health transfer versus 20 cents on the dollar from the Fed. So we want to make sure, uh, clearly, we want a child care. Uh, 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 policy. We want to uh, put in place a program. Uh, we're working very closely with the federal government to come up with a plan that works for the families in Ontario, but also is sustainable in the long run. So I don't have to stand up there and say, this is a Machiavellian scheme like Prime Minister Robarts did. All First of all, I, I, I do want to give you props on calling him Prime Minister Robarts, because some of our listeners may not understand that the job used to be called Prime Minister of Ontario, not Premier of Ontario. Bill Davis changed it to Premier. So Props to you. You got that right. Still is called Prime Minister in French. Le Premier Ministre de Quebec. Prime Minister exactly. of Quebec is uh, the Premier. Mm -hmm. 
Minister, what is the one thing you need from your federal counterpart, Christian Freeland, right now? The one thing? You're only limiting me to one thing, John Michael? Maybe the, the, the biggest thing. <laughs> well, uh, well, the Canada Health Transfer. I mean, we are not hesitating to make the investments right now, John Michael, in terms of uh, expanding our hospital capacity. I put in another $1.8 billion, as you know, in the March budget. Uh, put in $3.7 billion of funding allocation to complete the build of 30,000 long-term care beds. So that's fully funded, uh, 28,000 refurnished beds. Um, We are going to continue to make the investments in in our uh, health human resources to support. You know, it's one thing to build capacity, physical capacity. You have to have the nurses, the personal support workers, the support staff. So putting in funding in place for that. Uh, We hired another, uh, we we put in place the $342 million in the fall economic statement for hiring another 5,000 registered nurses and registered practical nurses. So my number one thing would be the Canada Health Transfer because we have two and a half million people over the age of 65 today. In 25 years, that'll be 4.5 million people another 2 million people. So it's it's just math. It's not ideology. We've got to invest today, get shovels in the ground and hire people today uh, to support the health care system of the future. So that would be the number one thing. We're asking for 35 cents on the dollar, not going back to the 50 that Prime Minister Robarts uh, had in place, but 35 cents uh, versus the roughly 22 cents we have today. That would be the number one thing. Shall we talk some brass knuckles politics here? Why not? Let's do it. Which opposition party do you believe poses the greater threat to the progressive conservatives being reelected? Well, that's a great question. And I'm going to do one of those uh, pivots, uh, Steve, that you always say uh, uh, that sometimes break your, break your ankle because I pivot so hard. I, I don't really look at the opposition. I, I look at it more at what are we doing? What record are we going to run on? Um, you know, what's uh, what's important to to our government, to to this premier, premier Doug Ford, you know, it's about leadership, and and we made uh, we put a marker down with the fall economic statement. We said three things. We said we are going to continue to make those investments in our healthcare system. Uh, that uh, we've had a healthcare infrastructure deficit, both in physical capacity and people. Uh, we're going to continue to uh, build Ontario. So that means yes, highways uh, for those that uh, don't have the option of cycling to work. Um, which, by the way, I did in New York. I lived in New York for a number of years, and I didn't have a car. But in some places in Ontario, you need a car. So we're going to build the highways. We're going to invest, as you know, in public transit, taking people off the roads. Uh, We're going to build those hospitals and and broadband. Uh, And I think it's really important to, to tell people that we're not talking about it. We're putting shovels in the ground because you have to have the political will to put shovels in the ground. And yes, it, it sometimes gets um, uh, cantankerous in the house over, over putting shovels in the ground, but that'll be the second thing. And, and you've seen, we, we've made a very clear statement about supporting workers, you know, standing on the podium as I had the fortune to do with Jerry Dias and Smokey Thomas uh, with the Premier and, and Monty McNaughton uh, supporting minimum wage, uh, investing in skilled trade workers uh, and uh, second careers for, for workers. You know, we've got a lot more to do uh, with uh, with our Labour colleagues. So, so it's more about what we would do as opposed to uh, who the opposition might be. This is your last budget before the election. Uh, we know how important pre-election budgets can be. Uh, just in my time at Queen's Park, both the 2014 and 2018 uh, budgets were you know, pre-election documents. 
one helped the liberals get reelected, one didn't. Um, how much pressure do you feel right now to ensure that you get this just right so that the, the budget uh, helps ensure that you don't be, uh, you, you are not a, a one-term government? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and John Michael, I, I feel the appropriate amount of pressure. And I think any finance minister should feel the appropriate uh, amount of pressure. One of the ways to take that pressure off is uh, I go door knocking every weekend. So I go and, um, and, and was out last uh, Saturday with 15 uh, volunteers knocking on doors and really listening and hearing from people. And it's amazing what you hear at the front door. Um, I think the, uh, that's, that's something that, you, you know, you get, when you knock on a door, people don't have much time to react. They go, oh, the finance minister or the MPPs at my door. They blurt out the thing that's number one on their mind because they don't have time to think. And it's incredibly informative. So that really helps take the pressure off. And, and I, I got to say that uh, this finance minister, I've got a great set of colleagues in caucus, and I've got a premier that's, you know, willing to uh, make the tough decisions, the political will, for example, to, to make tough, tough decisions on building things and, and healthcare measures that may be unpopular in the short run. But, you know, being very clear that we're going to protect people's lives is our number one priority and the healthcare system, you know, having the political courage to uh, to see through not just the short term, but having a long term vision for the province, I think is a, it gets you through. Get, well, hopefully we'll get this finance minister through his second budget. What is the one thing you hear at the door more than anything else from your constituents? Yeah, it's it's it really that's a great question, Steve. It's really all over the place. But I would say if I really had to distill it, uh, affordability, you know, you had to go to the gas pump, you know, hey, it costs a lot more than I remember. You go to the grocery store, you, you know, you go to rent a place, you go to buy a house, you go, you know, and these may be transitory, but I can tell you for a lot of people, it's not transitory. It's right here, right now. And so as governments, you know, you got to think hard and think about the things that you can do and what policy levers you have to 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 help people who who have circumstances where this is a struggle. And uh, next week, the, pri- the premier is leading a, um, a housing summit, for example, um, on uh, next Wednesday to to bring the best minds together, uh, all levels of government to kind of say, OK, what do we need to do to help not just the housing affordability, but affordable housing for those that the, the dream of a house uh, is even too far afar. Um, so those are the types of things that uh, I hear if I really had to amalgamate the number one thing. I think the, the housing file for this government is, is largely being carried by uh, Steve Clark, uh, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing. But you're the finance minister. You're you know one of the, the, the most important ministers in, in the cabinet. Uh, what do you see your ministry being able to do on the housing affordability file? Yeah, it's a very good question, John Michael. I, I definitely see that uh, this is not a solution, the housing affordability and affordable housing. Uh, that's a short-term thing. We, we've got to work together, not just for the short-term, but for the long-term. That supply-demand imbalance is not going away. There's there's more demand than there is supply. We're going to welcome more people to this province. Um, this is a great place to bring up a family. So I see my role is to work with uh, the federal government, uh, the municipal governments, uh, to support my colleagues, uh, you know, obviously the Premier Doug Ford and Steve Clark when they hold the summit next week, and to work with my counterpart, Christian Freeland and and all provincial finance ministers to say, hey, we've got to solve this together. 
and and but we got to solve it. We got to come up with ideas now. So um, obviously, we can look at a bunch of things from the finance point of view, but uh, really, uh, the supply side is it's such a critical part of this, and that's why I believe different orders of government have to come together to solve this together. We have uh, time for one last question for you, and we're not going to pretend that this is the most important question that you've ever been asked. And I ask this question with a great deal of humility because I do recall once upon a time signing off a broadcast and getting my own last name wrong. So these things do happen. Uh, You were making an announcement just east of Peterborough uh, not too long ago (laughs) when the mayor of that constituency uh, tried to introduce you and didn't even attempt your last name because I think he just took a look at it and got scared and thought, I'm just going to call him Peter. And I wonder, you've got a cabinet colleague named Jones. You've got another one named Smith. Do you ever want to change names with them? Not in a million years, because when you Google Bethlehem Falvey, you're <laughs> going to find me. If <laughs> you Google Jones, good luck. Listen, it took me a couple of years to figure out my name. So I, I have a lot of uh, give for, for people like that. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I got in this business to to try to to help Ontario. I told the story about my parents. In fact, yesterday, Bill 50 was tabled. Uh, in the legislature by my colleague, Rudy Cazetto, a private member's bill to make October Hungarian Heritage Month. And I'm so proud of that. You know, so many people from so many places have built this great province, either they've been there for a long time, like our First Nations, and and many have come uh, a long time ago. Many have just come here. Um, And that's what makes this province, I think, so phenomenal. It's what uh, puts the the, ga- the air in my tires every single day. And, and so uh, if they have a little bit of trouble with my name, that's just fine by me. Good stuff. Minister, thanks so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. And uh, people can't see us, but you've got a nice yellow shirt on today that uh, reminds me of a place uh, just uh, west of Toronto. Uh, <laughs> first of all, it's not a shirt. It's a jersey. It is a football jersey. <laughs> and that's what we discussed with the finance minister. <laughs> I stand correct. All good wishes. Be well. You too. That was our interview with Minister of Finance, Peter Bethlenfaldi. He is quite right. You know, if you do look up Smith and Jones, you're going to see a lot of entries (laughs) in Wikipedia for former politicians. But he's right. There's only one Bethlenfaldi. And um, well, yeah, that's a hard name to say. (laughs) You know, it's... um, it's an interesting position that he finds himself in. I mean, I, I don't want to jinx it, but like if he makes it to budget day, he will be the only one of uh, Doug Ford's finance ministers to deliver two consecutive budgets. Um, and yeah, like it's going to be a re-election document. Almost by definition, it has to be. Uh, we've talked about this uh, on the podcast before. Like we, it, it, The government could easily decide to just go straight to an election after the budget drops. The premier swears he won't do that, but, you know, it, it could happen. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I I think Peter Bethlenfalvy is, a you know, a, a serious guy who crunches these numbers and takes the numbers seriously, but it's also inherently a political document. Well, I do remember you're referring in the interview to the fact that the Kathleen Wynne government brought in a successful budget in 2014, successful because it kickstarted them towards a successful re-election campaign, uh, not so much as you pointed out in 2018. I guess the most famous budget in Canadian history on that regard was in 1979, John Crosby's budget. He was the progressive conservative finance minister in Joe Clark's government. He brought in a budget with huge tax increases on gas. Um, it was all meant to reduce the deficit. 
I, he, he obviously thought, and Prime Minister Clark obviously thought, they had lots of support in the House of Commons to get it through. Turns out they didn't. They lost a confidence motion, went to the polls. Pierre Trudeau came back for another term, uh, majority government as Prime Minister of Canada, and the Joe Clark Prime Ministership lasted all of nine months. So you want to talk about pre-election budgets and how important they are to the success of governments? There's your best example right there. We always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. My quote of the week comes from New Democrat MPP Taras Natashak, who, as we mentioned, announced he will not be running again in the 2022 Ontario election. Uh, we also talked about what's going on with Laurentian University, and it turns out the chair of the Public Accounts Committee is none other than Taras Natashak. And uh, when MPPs were debating the matter of the Speaker's warrant for Laurentian, uh, Natashak was uh, addressing both members of the committee, but also um, the, the government house leader and the uh, House leader for the official opposition were were in the room as they were debating all of this, uh, and he addressed them uh, about the the importance of the committee's work. Uh, and I I thought it was a really um, it was a really nice statement about how some of the real work does happen at Queens Park. Here's a bit of what he had to say. If you don't know already, this committee is unique in its structure, um, and I didn't know that until I became the chair because I'd never had the opportunity to sit a, as a member of the committee. But this committee operates on a basis of collaboration, cooperation, and compromise. It is unique in its structure, and it is those virtues that make it a really special and important um, function of, of this legislature and legislatures in parliamentary systems across around the world. Um, and I have been honored uh, to sit with the committee members, especially during this uh, difficult time, because we found that measure of cooperation and, and, uh, and collaboration, and today your presence here with us as uh, opposition members and government officials and members uh, reinforces those virtues. That's NDP MPP for Essex, Taras Natashak, who announced last week that after more than a decade at Queen's Park, he will not run again in the next general election. You know, I wouldn't want to mess with him. I think he's a, he's a, <laughs> he's a former hockey player. I think he played in the Ontario Hockey League. And uh, to the best of my recollection, somebody told me he got into 200 fights once and, you know, I think gave a bunch of other people concussions while fighting. So that's something to keep in mind, whoever wants to cross Mr. Natashak in the days ahead. Well, I, I was thinking about him because we uh, we had an interview with him in one of the previous episodes of the podcast uh, back in the uh, before COVID times uh, about his uh, <laughs> performance isn't the right word, uh, but his performance during question period and how he became uh, uh, so skilled at getting under the skin of the premier. Um, And I I was thinking about that on Friday, you know, reporters occasionally enjoy the act of getting under uh, a politician's skin, but Taras Natashak makes us all look like amateurs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's now is uh, my quote of the week, and um, we're going to have a little fun here. I touched on this during our interview with Finance Minister Peter Bethlen Falvey, whose name really is quite difficult for some to pronounce. Even the Premier had trouble with it during the first many months of his time in office. Well, last week, at an announcement just east of Peterborough, the mayor of Asphodel Norwood Township, His name is Roger Bono. He started to introduce the dignitaries present, and then he got to the finance minister's name. Well, (laughs) have a listen. Our Premier Doug Ford, Minister Surma, and Minister Pacini, and our Finance Minister Peter, uh, uh, our Warden Jay Murray Jones of Peterborough County. 
That's Mayor Roger Bono from the township of Asphodel, Norwood, doing what so many have had trouble doing, namely pronouncing the word Bethlen Falvey, which thankfully so far, Mr. McGrath and I have never mispronounced to the best of my knowledge. Uh, certainly never on tape. <laughs> here, here. <laughs> This week's episode of the On Poly Podcast was produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, that's our last episode for 2021, so I know you want to join me and the gang here in wishing our listeners the best of the season, and we'll see everybody again in 2022. And then we start gearing up for an election in perhaps the tail end of the pandemic. (laughs) That is exactly right. Yep. June. We know the date. Well, we know we allegedly know the date. June 2nd, 2022 is when the law says the next election should be. But you're right. There's nothing that prevents Doug Ford from calling one earlier. We shall see. It's going to be a really interesting year. Mm -hmm. Well, let's sign off for one last time in 2021. And we'll do it, as my dad always likes to say, by urging people to stay positive, but test negative. Stay safe, Steve, and everyone else, too. (laughs) 